Hello and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Join myself, Gary, is... Mr. Tilted Isa. And we're back, one week removed from the last time, which is sooner than has been normally the case in recent times. Joining us to discuss blankety blanks, plural, is Bean as a Carrot. I understand, Bean, that you've actually brought with you some refreshment for us all, is that correct? Yeah. This may surprise people, but Blankety Blanks actually released its own lemonade. And it's available in a variety of formats, which Graham Kennedy might tell you about, perhaps. I've tried most other lemonades, and I couldn't find one that I liked, so I made my own. And naturally, I've called it Graham Kennedy's Blankety Blanks Lemonade. Mm. That'd put lead in your blank, and I've decided to offer you, as an introductory bonus in various stores, this 500ml can at the 370ml can price. Now, that's a third more. Free! Well, I'm astonished. And it would take quite a bit to shift me from my Pepsi Max addiction, but for this evening only, I am going to be supping Blankety Blanks lemonade throughout. And bearing in mind that this is a can that hasn't been opened since 1978, I don't really know what to expect, but here it goes. Oh, yes, it's it's certainly a vintage. So you have actually poured it down your blank then. That, that's oh. possibly why. <laughs> Gary tried 1978 Blankety Blank Lemonade, and he felt that it tasted like blank. <laughs> so, Bean, how did you first spot Blankety Blanks? Had you seen Blankety Blank singular with Tell or Les beforehand? Well, I remember a mid-80s revival of Blankety Blanks, which was hosted by Daryl Summers on Channel 9. And I don't have a lot of memories of this program. It was very short-lived, I understand. It only ran for a year. My main memory of Blankety Blanks with Daryl Summers is that it featured some female hostesses who would come out wearing bikinis or one-piece swimsuits, and they would hand Daryl the uh, next round of questions so i suppose they were trying to inject some kind of mid-80s glamour to the um, program which didn't really seem to work because it only went for about a year but when i watched this of course i was quite young i was still at primary school so i had really no idea that about eight years previously there had been a far more successful version of the program hosted by graham kennedy i never really thought much about it again until I found myself in London in the early 2000s and I came across Lily Savage's Blankety Blank on ITV one night and that was fine. But what I thought was completely bizarre was the consolation prize, which was the, the checkbook and pen. I couldn't believe that they were getting this weird silver sculpture thing which seemed to have no purpose at all. It seemed very strange. Again, I didn't really think about it a great deal until you dropboxed me a huge amount of episodes of the match game and blankety blank with les dawson and so forth yeah i've been thinking about it a lot recently shall we say this seems to be now a recurring theme bemusement about the checkbook and pen whereas i'm born 77 so i grew up yeah i could still i sort of remember terry wogan hosting it originally but mainly les dawson and the thing is it was just there the blankety blank checkbook and pen was just a thing so I didn't really notice anything particularly tatty about it. It was just, that was the norm. Why do newsreaders sit down rather than stand on their hands when they're reading the news? Yeah, and looking back at it now and comparing it to the Constellation Prizes on all our shows, and particularly compared with American shows as well, then it's quite something. Les Dawson definitely held it up for mockery. I mean, I, I'm aware that historically in British game shows, the prizes have not been great. Whereas I suppose I grew up watching mid-80s, early 90s, Sale of the Century, where the contestant would walk away with a car, a holiday, a boat, a lounge suite, some cutlery, and $60,000. So the idea that you might walk away from a game show with three videos or something just seems totally ridiculous yeah the the checkbook and pen seemed a bit weird but you know that's quite typical for game shows pointless has their rotating bit of perspex so why not a checkbook and pen 15 to 1 was a glass bowl wasn't it or was that mastermind 
Well, Mastermind still yeah, is, no, I think. No, yeah. I was on 12, was it? no, 15 to 1, sorry. Um, and yes, it was a glass bowl. I didn't get anywhere near the glass bowl, though. It's the one thing that always strikes us when we watch Australian things is that they're in an uncanny valley because they look mostly British, but there's a commerciality and a sense of acquisition that's a bit unnerving. Yeah, a lot of Australian television, particularly commercial television, it's very much a mix of British showbiz traditions mixed with American TV capitalism, if you like. But one of the things that struck me about watching Match Game was that it seemed a lot less monetized than Graham Kennedy's Blankety Blanks. Obviously, they show the shots of the consolation prizes and, and, you know, the prizes that the winning contestants get as well. But they're not trying to monetize it in other ways. Whereas there's a wonderful bit at the end of every episode of Blankety Blanks where there's several minutes of promotions for various products that Graham Kennedy is associated with, which is weirdly, I think, sometimes my favorite part of the program. It really is every <laughs> single aspect of his everyday life, isn't it? This has been delved into. I'm surprised he didn't actually tell you what room number it was that he stays in in the, the, well, the Boulevard. Yeah, so the Boulevard Hotel 90 William Street King's Cross. You'll be thrilled to hear, I googled this, the Boulevard Hotel still exists and one can still stay in it if one visits Sydney. So that's great. And my other favourite discovery from the final credit sequence was that the bounty shop who... um coordinate Mr. Kennedy's wardrobe also still exists. So if you're ever in Frankston, which is just outside of Melbourne, you can pop into the bounty shop for all your menswear needs. <laughs> they have their own website as well. So go look that up. Could you tell us more about Graham Kennedy? Because I think he looms large in Australian television in a way that Gene Rayburn does not in US television. Well, Gene Rayburn seems to me, and I don't know a great deal about American television, like a fairly typical American TV host of that era in that he's kind of a slightly Ed Sullivan-ish kind of grumpy middle-aged man type figure. He seemed perfectly fine as a host to me, but Graham Kennedy, he is quite a big figure in the history of Australian television. He was a very early star of television and he became known as the king you know, when he died, there was a huge outpouring of grief. And really all throughout his career, he he was paid huge amounts of money and he got pretty much full control over all the programs he worked on. And really, Blankety Blanks, it's really adapted for him. It's very much in the style of Graham Kennedy. Kennedy started out in Melbourne television back then, they couldn't network television because they didn't really have the technology. So it was a, he had a Tonight Show called In Melbourne Tonight, which was only seen in the Melbourne area for the first few years of its life. This was such a popular program that pubs would clear out, everyone would go home and watch IMT. And they paid him enormous amounts of money because he was so popular and, you know, he could rake in so many advertising dollars. It got to the point where Channel 9, I think they ran out of money and they ran out of incentives to give him. They couldn't pay him more. They couldn't give him any more things. So they just built him a swimming pool out the back of the studio. There are TV stars over the year who've been fated and adored and paid millions of dollars or pounds or whatever, but I've never heard of anyone else who's had a swimming pool built for them. So that I suppose, is how popular the man was and how loved. And it's interesting if you watch Blankety Blanks because it started up a couple of years after the end of his time as a Tonight Show host. And there's an awful lot of references back to his career doing that. He eventually went national and was hugely popular around the country with his show. And they make endless references to various things that happened on his programs. And really, it carries on the whole Kennedy oeuvre is carried on through Blankety Blanks. It's sort of obvious as well that the audience really missed him in the several years that he was away. Blankety Blanks comes on and what is essentially a kind of very early evening game show is rating huge numbers and is extraordinarily popular for what it is. And that's partly because he's a great presenter and comedian and just because he's Graham Kennedy. He's so popular. It does strike me also that Blankety Blank's match game, the format itself, a lot of it seems to come down to the host. 
themselves because as, as a format like we've talked about before there's only so far that you can go with it there's only so many times you can do the innuendos and if you go beyond the innuendo then it loses its charm but yeah graham kennedy i'm right in thinking that he actually called time on the show himself after two series because he felt we've done enough i believe the anecdote is that he wanted to consult ugly dave gray who is the guy who occupies the top right corner he's the guy who's on at every show Ugly Dave Gray, to just explain, he's a he's from Manchester, yeah. He's a Northern Club comic who becomes very popular on Australian television. And so he's second fiddle, really, to Kennedy on the show. Kennedy had control over who appeared on the show, and he made sure that all the people who appeared on it were good. And if people came on and weren't any good, he'd get rid of them. And so that's why you keep getting some of the people on, Nolene Brown and Noel Ferrier and Stuart Wagstaff and so forth. They're on it all the time because they work well with him. And when the series came up for renewal after the second series, he went to Ugly Dave Gray and he said, you know, what do you think? Do you want to do a third series? And apparently Dave Gray said, well, I've kind of run out of jokes. And Graham, I guess, sort of thought, well, okay, let's end it. I suppose if you're Graham Kennedy in that era, you've got so much money, you've got loads of offers in various genres. By that time, he was a film actor as well and doing various other things. So, you know, he probably didn't want to get involved in another long running show, having spent the first 15 years of his career just every night pretty much doing a Tonight Show. So I guess he didn't want to keep doing that grind. And so, yeah, it just ended. I don't see a similar relationship in any of the other versions of this game, as there is between Graham Kennedy and Ugly Dave. Gene Rayburn's job seems to be to shut panellists up and calm them down, because otherwise they will just run off with it. Wogan and Dawson have to build a new relationship every time. There might be people who are dependable, but there's nobody who's there every single show. And there's just this nice sense that if there's a bit of a dead end, if something's a bit awkward, Graham Kennedy can look at Ugly Dave and temporarily pass the show over to him. Yeah, I can see why Ugly Dave ran out of jokes, because he's doing one of his gags every time they come to him. He must have burned through material, and I can completely understand that. But what's quite nice about their relationship is, you know, they've known each other for years, they've worked together for years, and and they understand how television works and that the material they're doing on the show is going to the edge of what's acceptable in, in that early evening time slot. And so they start making jokes about how, all oh, this is going to be cut, that's going to be cut. And Ugly Dave Gray became very famous for doing a scissor mime, which you can see him do every time he thinks there's something that the director's going to have to cut. So you, you can see him quite often doing the scissor mime. He, he doesn't say anything, he just does the scissor mime. Whereas sometimes Kennedy will realise that he or someone else has done something that's going to be cut. And so he'll kind of do a stilted move to mock, you know, how it's going to look when they have to cut the gag out. And actually, you can see a lot of these very, very stilted kind of jump cuts in the show. And they give absolutely no context at all to what's just been cut. And so you have to kind of guess. But those real censorship cuts and also their kind of mocking of potential censorship became a real thing on the show and is one of the things that people remember it for. And we should point out as well, of course, that unlike Blankety Blank, but like Match Game, this is a nightly show, isn't it? This is going out, to, I think, initially at half past seven, then 7pm, and it's every night of the week. And even that aspect, you can hear Graham Kennedy mocking when he tries to remember what day of the week it's supposed to be, according to the, the taping schedule. Yeah, they try to remember that. Oh, they'll mention one of the celebrities' birthdays or they'll mention what TV show they're on later that night or something. And they must have taped this stuff several months in advance, I guess. Presumably there was some kind of person who kept track of all this. I believe they made about 500 episodes of the show over the two years. So there must somewhere in the archives of Channel 10 be, or, or Reg Grundy Productions possibly, be this enormous teetering pile of tapes of Blankety Blank full of all sorts of gold. <laughs> Well, that first edition of Blankety Blanks, the contestant who's playing Supermatch, Graham Kennedy says to her, how, how would you spend the money if you won it? And she says, Christmas. And then Graham Kennedy says, oh, she, she means Christmas coming up at the end of this year, because of course, it's January, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's, that's the same episode where when, <laughs> when the first game comes to an end, Graham Kennedy's saying to the losing contestant, well, you know, it's been very uh, nice to have you here. Nobody goes home empty-handed. And as he's about to describe what prize the guy's going home with, the board starts to turn. The guy's going out a shot before he's had a chance to win his prize. I like it as well when they're playing Supermatch. You can see the board come down to show the amount of money that they've won. And you, you can see it's sort of slightly off frame. It's interesting, I think, I mean, even though it's not particularly technically advanced, even for that era, they obviously had a few teething problems with some of the technology at that time. I don't know if you've seen this, but the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia recently did an online exhibition about Graham Kennedy. And it's really interesting. Um, If you Google it, you'll find all sorts of amazing stuff. One of the things in it, though, is there's actually a recording that Kennedy made after he'd seen a few of the early episodes that obviously been sent to him and he recorded his thoughts onto cassette and sent it off to the producers. And he talks about how he doesn't like some of the direction and he is trying to be nice about it to not upset the director, but he's fairly critical of what the director's done, how the director's cut away from either him or some of the other comedians when they're making jokes and, you know, spoiling their gags and so forth. And he's very, very interested in the craft of comedy and making sure that it's a funny program. And he's obviously got some concerns about the direction, which it became such a legendary show. So clearly it worked. But yeah, look that up if you're interested in this sort of thing. I don't know if I should say this, but I can't get on with Stuart Wagstaff. Ooh, controversial. I think I remember one where there's that sort of giggly cocktail party atmosphere going on, and he says something about John English, like, oh, he's looking for his lost youth, and the temperature seems to drop a few degrees. And Stuart seems like he's the one who will keep being witty after it stops being the time to be witty. I can imagine him genuinely upsetting someone. I think probably this being Australia, part of the reason he would have upset people is is just because he's a sort of slightly posh pom. Just that alone tends to upset some Australians. But, I mean, he is witty and clever and educated and there's a certain streak amongst Australians. We like to think we're all working class. We don't want to be seen to be above ourselves. You know, someone like Stuart Wagstaff, who who's basically there to bring a bit of class and a bit of wit I can see him getting on people's nerves for that reason. But, you know, he seems like a pretty good panellist to me. He's a bit like Richard Dawson in in Match Game in that a lot of people go to him for Supermatch. I guess he's that kind of reliable patrician figure in that sense. You know, from the episodes that I've seen, it seems they tried quite a variety of people ranging from pop stars whose usual fan base are kind of teenage girls and boys to people who like Stuart Wagstaff or um, Peggy Tapano, who, you know, are working in more traditional kind of show business, or even Noel Ferrier, who basically is a sort of Australian version of Ned Sheeran in that he's a very much a theatre person. He's He became known for his theatrical anecdotes, and they really do showcase a wide range of Australian personalities on Blankety Blanks. There's a, a really interesting array of women, I think, on the programme, and one of the things that I suppose I find quite interesting from a female perspective is that it's an equal gender panel in terms of the celebrity panelists, but also the contestants. You know, you always have, apart from the host, of course, who skews it slightly male, it's an even number of men and women on the panel. And you have a range of people ranging from comedians like Ugly Dave Gray to more kind of show business personalities. And they can all be funny in their own different ways. It's an interesting program. One thing that I actually spotted when I was just doing some bits and pieces of research for this was that even though Bruce Gingell is always credited as the first person to appear on Australian TV, apparently Graham Kennedy had actually appeared in test transmissions on Australian TV. So he was actually before him. I didn't know that, actually. The story about Kennedy, how he got into television, is that he appeared on a telethon in 1957, it would have been, which is when they launched television in Melbourne. This must have been within the first couple of months, really. And Channel 9 were looking for someone to host a Tonight Show. And they really liked him based on this fairly brief appearance on this telethon. And, you know, at the time he was a radio guy. And, you know, the only reason he was on the telethon was because all of the people from the radio station appeared on the telethon. 
supposedly Kennedy just got television instantly. He understood how to use the camera, whereas a lot of the radio people, they just stood quite stiffly because they couldn't quite get the visual medium. But Kennedy just got it. And that's part of the reason why I think he became an early star of the medium is he just had this innate understanding of, of what to do. Graham Kennedy, what kind of bits and pieces did he do after Blind Sea Blinds? He did a few films, some of which are pretty good. By that point, he had so much money and he was starting to invest in radio stations. He was still doing a, a few radio shows, I think, in various markets. But really, he didn't make a big return to television until maybe 1988. I think he had a very popular program, which became known as Graham Kennedy's Coast to Coast, which was a, a sort of late night show which he co-hosted with a newsreader. A lot of it was topical comedy based around the news. It could sometimes get quite scurrilous, I suppose. You know, it was a late night show. It was Graham Kennedy. It was only going to go one way, really. One of the funny things that he apparently used to do was he wouldn't wear any trousers because he was behind a desk. No one could see that who was watching the program, but he had a studio audience. And so when the ad break came, he would stand up and he'd show everyone that he wasn't wearing trousers. And you can actually get a DVD of some of the episodes of Graham Kennedy's Coast to Coast, and they've left in the sound of the audience after they've gone to the ad break. And the sound of shock and laughter as he reveals himself to them is just quite wonderful. As part of my research, I did watch the TV movie The King. I don't know whether that was a mistake. Because that actually ends with Blankety Blank's beginning and it's like they have a celebration party, how well it's going, and then he gets in the back of his car and says, I'm a self-loathing gamer. Well, he doesn't say that, but... <laughs> there were a lot of very similar biopics of comedians made by the BBC at around the same time that, that one was made. And, and they all seem to be about self-loathing gay men, pretty much. I suppose the thing to remember about Blankety Blanks is that homosexuality still had not been decriminalised in most Australian states at the point that it was made. So there were very few states that it was going out with where the activities of Cyril would actually be legal. So it wasn't really until I think the early 80s that it was decriminalised in the state of Victoria, which is where Kennedy's from, or indeed New South Wales, which is where Blankety Blanks was made. So that's probably quite realistic. A lot of Kennedy's friends have disputed the way in which the, I suppose the tone of the film really they say well you know he was private but he was a happy man in private and he wasn't this angry depressive that he's portrayed as I think a lot of the king is probably exaggeration but it was all right. Blankety Blanks has been brought back at least once were there any subsequent attempts to revive it? There was another version after the Daryl Summers hosted one. Apparently it came back for a second year, but not with him as host. It was hosted by John Blackman, who was actually a colleague of Daryl Summers, but a bit less famous than Daryl. I should probably explain who Daryl Summers is. He was the host for about 20 years of a program called Hey Hey It's Saturday, which is what in its day was astoundingly popular program. It became kind of notorious around the world about seven years ago when they made a kind of reunion special of the show. And one of the features of Hey Hey It's Saturday was there was an amateur talent competition called Red Faces where various appalling novelty acts would appear. And they brought back one of their supposed classic acts, which was five university students dressed up as the Jackson Five in blackface. And so this goes to air in the year 2010, and they have a celebrity judging panel, one of whom is Harry Connick Jr., who has a band with a lot of African-American musicians in it. And he was so appalled and offended by this that this caused a, a massive storm, and it actually ended up becoming an international story, so you might be aware of this. Daryl Summers, you know, he was also the producer of the show, and he rigorously defended the right to have a blackface act on Australian television in 2010. And he's wrong about that. There is no excuse for that. Anyway, that's who Daryl Summers is. And John Blackman was actually also in Hey Hey It's Saturday. So he's famous for that. I think there was also another revival of Blankety Blanks on Australian television at some other point more recently, which I've never seen. I can't really talk about that. 
Well, I can reveal that there was a revival in 1996 and it was hosted by Shane Bourne. Now, for five points, who can buzz in and tell me why I would know who Shane Bourne is? Well, you would know who he is because he was in Are You Being Served Down Under? um, Playing the Mr. Lucas role. (laughs) That's right. Yes, indeed. Just to keep things consistent, he was also a cast member of Hey, Hey, It's Saturday. So clearly the prerequisite for appearing in a rubbish revival of Blankety Blanks is to have been in a Saturday at some point. For those of you keeping tabs on this, and that really only is myself, I currently have all but one of Are You Being Served Down Under episodes. So there's just one that's eluding me, so I'm going to keep my eyes open for it. And when I've got it, then tilt, we're doing that in the sitcom club, whether you like it or not. Okay. Am I right in thinking, Bean, that you actually own a vinyl Ugly Dave Grey album. <laughs> it's true. Um, I do actually have a copy of Grey and Spicy Boom Boom, which he promotes on an early episode of Blankety Blanks, and I have never played it. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason... <laughs> The only reason I bought it was that it would be endlessly referred to in a radio program called Get This, which aired 2007 and 2008, I think I think it was. No, sorry, it was 06 and 07, Get This was on. And they would endlessly refer to all sorts of pop culture stuff, but Grey and Spicy Boom Boom was something they talked about a lot. And one day I'm going to listen to it. Or not. Probably not. I'd like the, the politician's denial. Yes, I admit that I do own this, but it has never, ever been on a turntable. <laughs> I've never inhaled, yeah. Do you have a favourite version of the show, then, having seen the triangle that we're talking about today? I enjoyed all of it, actually. I enjoyed the recent revival with Alec Baldwin. I kind of liked how, you know, a feature of the 70s shows was that people would be constantly smoking. And, you know, you can't do that now. So I kind of liked how they made it adult and a bit sophisticated by having glasses of wine for everybody. As someone who grew up in an era where people would talk about how great Graham Kennedy was and then they would show clips of old Graham Kennedy stuff, I just thought it was the least funny stuff I'd ever seen. You know, I kind of grew up not liking Kennedy and having now watched an awful lot of episodes of Blankety Blanks, I actually realised what a great talent he is you know how good he is at improvisation at comic timing and so I suppose it's your fault I now really like Graham Kennedy and I also really liked both of the British versions I liked Terry Wogan he's got a slightly subtler hosting style than Les Dawson has but I really liked Les Dawson and I liked the grumpiness that he brought to the program it was quite interesting I started thinking about Humphrey Littleton and I'm sorry I haven't a clue and how that show evolved over his 30 years of hosting, Hump gradually becomes this kind of grumpy figure, and that really made the show. And really, I think Les Dawson's almost the pilot for that grumpier version of Humphrey Littleton that turns up in, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, in the 90s, and I suppose kind of changes it. And also, Les Dawson, I think because he's a proper comedian, as opposed to Wogan, who's a kind of witty host type, it felt like... The Les Dawson Blankety Blanks was the kind of bridge between mild, amusing celebrity panel show that, you know, has been on British television for so many decades. And it's kind of like a segue to things like, you know, Have I Got News For You and those kind of more abrasive panel shows of the 90s. It's an interesting program in that sense. And so I really enjoyed seeing that and understanding how that sort of thing evolved. Smashing. Well, just to conclude, we asked. Megan, how she thought that Gene Rayburn would have reacted had anybody given his microphone the Kenny Everett treatment. So, Bean, how do you think that Gene Rayburn would have reacted if the director had said to him, right, from now on, Gene, we want you to actually refer by name to Peter the Phantom Puller? You have to explain what the Kenny Everett treatment is. So the Kenny Everett treatment is bending Terry Wogan's microphone. Oh. And whereas Tell took that in best possible humour, general consensus was that Gene Rayburn would have thrown a wobbly. Gene Rayburn, he's kind of like, you know, school mum in charge of some rowdy school kids, isn't he? He's trying to keep everyone under control. And and I think there would have been a point where he just had enough and he would just crack. Whereas Kennedy or Wogan or Les Dawson probably could have rolled with the punch a bit. I think Rayburn would have gone off in a right old strop. Well, thank you very much indeed, Bean, for joining us today. 
is there anything at all that you want to promote? Do you want to promote Twitter or blog or anything at all like that? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Ben is a carrot. I also turn up on a couple of blogs. One is called Australian Tumbleweeds, which is a sort of critique of contemporary Australian comedy. And the other one is called View from the Cheap Seat, which is a blog written by many people about what's on in the London theatre. So again, that's reviews of what's on in London theatre. So that's where you can find me. The check's in the mail. I hope your bank can cash checks that are made of tin plated with chrome. <laughs> yeah, I'll go to the blankety bank, as you suggested. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did find that interesting. Why could they not say you've won £100? Why did they have to say you've won 100 blanks? Is that some kind of, you know, I know there's a lot of legal stuff around prizes and stuff on British television in that era. Is Is that why they can't even mention money? Because they didn't have anything worth a hundred pounds. Oh, okay. You're winning a hundred blanks to get something that's worth about forty pounds. <laughs> right. Okay. All this talk about the cheapness of British game shows is making me homesick, though, Gary. I think it's time we went back home to Shepherd's Bush. Are we going to pop the 18th of January 1979 into Block? Okay. And we are going to switch on BBC One for the very first edition of Blankety Blank Singular. Hosted by the man himself, Terry Wogan. Now, one thing that I can't help but notice in this first edition is that Terry Wogan clearly has exactly the same type of microphone as Gene Rayburn in Match Game. I'm surprised the BBC went to all that expense. Well, as we mentioned last week, yes, it's the BBC budget version of a Sony ECM-51. And you're not the only person to notice it because I believe Bill Cotton, that was one of his notes... What was Bill Cotton's job at that time? Was he head of BBC One by this point, or is he still... Yeah, he was patrol BBC One. One of his notes is, do we have to have this long, thin microphone? <laughs> the BBC were not enthralled with Blankety Blank at first. Well, Terry took some persuading, didn't he? Well, no, this is a thing, because Terry Wogan was invited initially to view the Australian Blankety Blanks. And it was BBC producer Alan Boyd who initially suggested this. And this comes from a biography of Terry Wogan by a chap called Gus Smith. It was printed in 1987. Thank you very much to Steve Williams for pointing us in the direction of this. When Wogan saw Blankety Blanks from Australia, he thought that it was actually a little bit too risky and didn't really think that it would work in the UK. It wasn't until he then saw Match Game that he realised, yeah, there's something we can do with this here. So strangely enough, we've got a sort of hybrid where you've got the name, Blankety Blank, singular, taken from the Australian version, but the gameplay, I suppose, is a little more in the direction of the American show, so slightly less ribald, slightly less, I suppose you would say, anarchic than the Australian version, because, I mean, the Australian version, as we've talked about, Sometimes it almost seems like a rehearsal that you're watching. Sometimes they just run out of time on the show. Whereas things are a little bit more sensible and contained in the UK. And yet we've got British innuendo, self-cleaning jokes, what have you. We've got humour that will appeal to the are you being served viewing audience. I'd love to know which match game and which blankety blanks were viewed. Because I'm not sure they were all that different. As we've said before, they reached a point when everybody was answering boobs or butt or whatever permissible euphemism could be given for parts of the body. Norks. In the US match game. <laughs> said permissible, not incomprehensible. <laughs> I won't play Poughkeepsie. I'm not entirely sure what happened there. Because I don't think Blankety Blanks is wildly different from Blankety Blank. And I don't think that Blankety Blank is closer to match game. Blankety Blank is definitely, yes, less focused on the smart. It's the game as it really was meant to be played after its initial straight run, which is you get the laugh for the smutty idea, but you give a clean answer. As we said, we're talking about Match Game as a barometer of how standards of taste change. And I'm not sure it was necessarily a case that the British audience, the British players are less willing to be smutty, they've grown up in an atmosphere where innuendo and word substitution is much more fundamental to the sense of humour. 
So everybody knows how innuendo works. Nobody just shrugs and says, boops. Does that make sense? It's not that they're not willing. It's not that they have cleaner minds. It's not that standards of taste have changed. Everybody's just grown up with this idea. They see filth in, in places where I think US minds wouldn't see it. It's 1979. We've just come to the end of the Carry On series. And that kind of humour is really ingrained in British society and still is to an extent as well. Is this a British thing because basically, I know you've had exposure to German TV, for example. And if you ever go around like the TV channels in continental Europe, you sort of notice that sometimes they're a bit more, hmm. Whereas we don't really have that in the UK. Or at least we didn't back then. And so instead of, hmm, then you actually just have suggestion rather than having it in front of you. Does this make sense? Because I'm actually, I'm, I'm trying to say this without actually saying it. Yeah, I know what you mean. So it's not a huge sort of adjustment. And so to some people, some non-British minds, it's why is not saying that word funny? Why is that well, not saying that word funnier than saying that word? I don't know. It's always been like that. <laughs> I once read a blog posting about, I think it was somebody from the US, had discovered that in the UK we're less likely to say, that's what she said, and say, as the actress said to the bishop. <laughs> or as I once got a look from my wife for saying, as the chorus boy said to the sailor. <laughs> you put another layer between the, the words and the meaning. Another thing to talk about, though, is the difference in British game shows from practically everybody else's game shows. You talk about how Blankety Blanks looks like a rehearsal. It's five days a week being churned out at a far faster rate. What was the state of daytime television in 1979? I mean, we'd only had daytime television for seven years. Well, daytime television is a bit more extensive on ITV than it is on BBC, and it would be still for all seven years. So ITV has things like Crown Court and Afternoon Plus and things like that. Not a huge number of game shows unless you include things like Free Little Awards and what have you. And originally Blockbusters was intended to be a daytime show until it eventually took on the sort of post-CITV slot. But BBC at this time is still pretty much test card and eventually pages from CFAX. So you don't really have a great deal of daytime television. Lots of schools and colleges programmes and of course, as we know from Everdequeese and Suckles, programmes in Welsh. English transmitters only. Try explaining that to somebody outside the UK. <laughs> So the game show in the UK is a primetime thing, and it is weekly, so they have a little more time. People talk about blankety-blank looking cheap. I don't think it looks cheap. Do you know what? I've actually just realised I can remember exactly when game shows went daytime in the UK. Oh, go on. It was, I think, autumn of 87 that ITV moved the school's programmes to Channel 4 and introduced the daytime schedule. And in that little slot, straight after TVM before you then get to the serious stuff like the time and the place and this morning and what have you, they would have a game show. The one I remember in particular was the Bernie Winters fronted Who's Baby, in which they show you like photographs of some celebrities of baby and you've got to guess who they are. So this had already been running in peak time as a weekly show, but then they started doing it daytime, stripped each morning. And I do remember somebody writing into Oracle Teletext to complain that Bernie Winters was overdoing it when he kept on saying, Morning, everybody! Good morning! Morning, 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 morning! And this person sort of saying, Yeah, we get the joke. We, we know they're taping it in the evening. So yes, that was a thing. Also, we had a think, didn't we? And I'm not sure we could come up with something for a game show on BBC television. Not a panel show or a quiz show. An actual game show with prizes. I think we might have found one predecessor. And I thought I wrote it down, and apparently I didn't. But it's not a very BBC thing, is it, at this point in time? Members of the public come on and answer questions to win actual prizes, to win furniture and white goods, rather than win the right to call yourself movie buff of the year. What was that thing with Wilfred Pickles back in the day? Have a go. That's it, yeah. Is that about the closest you can get, really? Because that wasn't a panel show as such. And they had regular members of the public, but they were running very small denominations. Like I said, you kind of have public panel shows, which is, it is members of the public playing, but they're still not playing for desirable things. I mean, you have Ask the Family, 
quiz shows remember the public, those exist on BBC, but the actual come on and win a washing machine, that's a fairly new thing, isn't it? So people talk about the prizes on Blankety Blank, and let's face it, people who present Blankety Blank talk about the prizes on Blankety Blank <laughs> in a disparaging fashion. It's not just that the prizes were poor because the BBC was trapped for cash. This was fairly new territory for them. And that's why there's a faint feeling that this show isn't quite what the BBC should be doing and Bill Cotton's got questions. Of course, hang on a second. We're overlooking the most important one of all, which is, of course, Generation Game, from where Alan Boyd... That was it, yes. Yes. But that's it. That's the Generation Game. I think we came up with one other, but that's it. There's not a very long list, is there? No, it's, it's definitely an ITV thing, Huey Green and what have you. It, it, it's much more their kind of thing. I suppose starting with... Was, was there something before Beat the Clock as a component of Palladium? Would that have been the first instance on ITV or would you have had something before then? Something like I think a lot quiz. of them would have started simultaneously as Crisscross Quiz and <laughs> 21. Ah, yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, the, the, the thing is, that, okay, it, it's a novelty for the BBC, but also it's not a novelty for British television per se. So people are already used to the idea, the format of it. That's true, but my name isn't Percy. Percy the Phantom Puller. And there's also the attitude towards light entertainment. That's in the show as well. Everybody's acting faintly humiliated. Everybody's acting like there are much better things that they could be doing. So Tell is their original host, 1979 through until 83. And this, not quite, but sort of coincides with the point where he ceases his Radio 2 breakfast show and then starts his chat show three nights a week. That was another complaint about the show. Television show being presented by a disc jockey. I think it's an interesting thing. I think that there is, or was, I suppose. I think there probably was a certain amount of snobbishness about disc jockeys for a while. You remember the documentary series The Showbiz Set on Channel 4, 2002? And the second episode, a large chunk of that concentrated on Simon D. And the fall and rise, and he's seen as a sort of key figure in how it could all sort of vanish overnight and what have you. When Max Bygraves is talking about Simon D, his way of putting them down is to say he was a disc jockey. And I suspect that there was probably, that could be a mindset which was sort of pervasive amongst like variety performers. People of that ilk who were, you know, they, they had a sort of trade on the stage. So they were singers or they were comedians or dancers or whatever it may be. They were seen as legit exercises, whereas a disc jockey was seen as little more ironically than a quiz master, for example. So somehow, actually, the ability to be an MC, a professional MC, somehow that was like a sort of second class trade. I don't think you could really get that anymore, but I think that, that was something that was you well, know, an attitude Well, think about being a disc time. jockey is, I think, even doing it substandard, not necessarily badly, but being a mediocre disc jockey, I think, is quite difficult. <laughs> the reason that disc jockeys get this reputation of people who just prattle is because that's one of the skills. It's the skill to be able to turn a microphone on and to keep talking until the requisite amount of time has been filled and the next record can be played or the news can be played. And so, yes, it can be small talk. It can be egocentric waffle. But it fills that gap. It keeps things moving. And so television, obviously, well, like radio, I can understand why certain disc jockeys never made it in television. But in broadcasting and anything like that, somebody who is not going to dry, somebody who's not going to be easily lost for words, is a very high value in an unscripted show. And Terry Wogan was a good disc jockey. Wasn't a mediocre one. Even the name itself disc jockey is in a way it's almost like a bit of a put down isn't it because it's not it's not as grand as host or presenter it, it almost just sort of implies you're the person who is in charge of the mechanics of just simply playing the 45s so terry wogan i think was a perfect fit actually sorry can i just mention and as we mentioned on a jaffa cake jukebox recently gene rayburn started out in radio as a disc jockey Started out his broadcasting career, I think he was a page or PA before that. So Terry Wogan can turn his personality up and down. And also, Terry Wogan has a certain bruised dignity. So if things go wrong, he can just look in the camera as if, you know, it shouldn't happen to me. 
but it's not egocentric. It's not somebody as grand as I. It's just like, I am doing my best and this is happening. Can you imagine how Terry Wogan would have reacted to the school riot from Match Game? Yeah, I think it would have tested his patience a little bit. I don't think, I don't think that he's easygoing with his contestants, but if it threatens to get out of hand, I think that he would very politely state, look, I'm in charge. Without actually saying that, because that's obviously Brucey Catch. Take a sort of mock headmaster. Now you're overstepping your bounds. That kind of thing. Morgan is a perfect host for this because, like you say, it's not a common format for BBC television. And yet, Terry Wogan is very much a BBC man by this point. He's been on the radio for seven years by this point. So, commanding a mass audience on Radio 2 in the mornings, then he's seen as a safe pair of hands for this. Whereas if you got an unknown, for example, for this, then that could possibly, unfairly, possibly sink it early on because people would not be particularly accustomed to the format on BBC and also might just sort of think, oh, this is a bit sort of tatty. This is a bit sort of low rent and what have you. But with Tell there, it's like, it's almost as if he's sort of giving you permission to enjoy it because he's sort of saying, yeah, I know this is all a bit sort of cheap and cheerful, but what the heck, we'll have fun for half an hour. The recording schedule comes into play when we have the change of host. So Wogan is going to go on to do his three-night-a-week chat show. And the BBC has Les Dawson, but he's a finite resource. I think doing the sketch shows, doing a lot of his usual stuff, was beginning to wear him down a little bit. So Terry Wogan leaves, 1984. The next thing we see him in is his three-night-a-week chat show. I don't know if he leaves because there's that much pre-production on the chat show, or if there are other reasons. But they need a new host for Blankety Blank. At the same time, Les Dawson, I think, is finding the grind of doing his usual comedy shows beginning to get to him. So putting him on Blankety Blank, two on Saturday, two on Sunday, is a great way of getting a lot of real estate filled, but without quite as much effort on the part of the talent. I'm going to make a possibly controversial point. Blankety Blank with Terry Wogan is a better game show, but Blankety Blank with Les Dawson is equally as good as television. But watching at the beginning and the old... Seating arrangement's still there. And I started watching some from later in the run. And I think after a while, the seating arrangement fades away because the dominant comic male personality is the host. So it then all becomes about how he reacts and what he does. He's much meaner to the contestants. He's much more likely to say, what kind of an answer is that? But he can get away with it. I'm, I'm assuming... There's probably a lot of work done beforehand of, you know, don't take it seriously. It's only a game. Like Magnus Magnuson, mastermind, used to always pop his head around the doors of where the contestants were and said, don't forget, it's only a game. I've heard a few stories of quiz show hosts who were sharp to contestants because they'd been so obsequious beforehand. It was okay. All the groundwork had been laid. And I mean, Les Dawson himself, a lot of this we're getting from the book, The Trials and Triumphs of Les Dawson by Louis Barth. When his personal catchphrase was be kind. Wasn't it interesting last week when Megan had watched him blankety blank for us and she said Les Dawson is a physical comedian. If you ask somebody who'd heard of Les Dawson do an impression of Les Dawson, they'd pretend to lean on something and do a mother-in-law joke with a somewhat sad and humiliated face. A very dour. But actually, on blankety blank, he's all over the place in a really good way. So he will deliver a gag like it's a piece of tired shtick that he finds hilarious. You know, clap his hands and stamp his feet. Or he will spit it out like it's the whole thing is a humiliation. Much more than Wogan, he complains about how dreadful this show is and how dreadful the prizes are. Or he will go manic. Even like on Says Les, watching his old sketch shows, he's constantly changing his personality to whatever's funny, and yet it all seems consistent. But I think it means that the panellists have less and less to do. Watch one with Kelly Monteith. I don't think Kelly Monteith gets a joke out. No. And he's from Rosenta. <laughs> I think the only time he speaks is to answer a question. Yes. Yeah, I think he's slightly baffled by proceedings. And in a way, that kind of gets around the problem that sank match game. As we said, there came the point when you could just answer boobs or buns, or wiener. Well, it's a funny one. Am I talking about innuendo or am I starting a barbecue? (laughs) Because Gene Rayburn, he's mean, but he's not particularly funny with it. I don't think we ever had the booze, buns, wiener kinds of answers on Blankety Blank, but if we did, 
it's just a matter of sit back and watch what happens. What where does Les go? Ah, no, no, interesting you say that because we did occasionally, and this tends to be something that you get more in sort of early years in Wogan, first first couple of series. You do occasionally get censorship. I do remember one going out with Barbara Windsor, and she holds up a, a card, and it, it has a, like a sort of comedy Batman esque sort of sign that pops up and says "Whoa" in its place. <laughs> So I guess that maybe that's a sort of learning process for the show and for the contestants early on that there's certain things that you can't say and by the sort of second or first series that's been established. My favourite Les Dawson Blankety Bank moment, it's one that I've only heard, I haven't seen it. It's a sound clip, I think it used to be on the old TV Cream site but I'm not sure and I haven't found the show it went out on. But it's when he's giving somebody the consolation prize. Even in Wogan's day, the Blankety Blank checkbook and pen was a standing joke. But Les says to the contestant, trying to think of any other televisual culture that would have this happen. He says, you don't go away empty-handed. What you get is something prized beyond the dreams of avarice upon the wine-dark seas of Ithaca in the legends of time itself. A blankety-blank checkbook and pen! (laughs) You see, you've gone for something slightly highbrow there, whereas my favourite blankety-blank moment is something very lowbrow. Which is, and I think this might be on YouTube, and I also think it might be a special edition for children in need. It's around about 84, 85, thereabouts. But there's some sort of pre-prepared shtick with Radio 1's Peter Powell appearing in the audience and offering to join the panel on stage. And he bolts down the stairs and then runs up to take up the personality seat top right and the it's not intended but the the, the pratfall that he does he slips on the step going up the pratfall is fabulous i mean if you're gonna fall up a flight of stairs and this is how you do it it's not a slight oh it's not nearly lost my position there it's like full-on you know face down on the ground and what have you and i'm pretty sure i think was this a live broadcast whatever it was it stayed in the the final one anyway well if you want me to nominate one that's Less excessive in its loquacity. Jack Douglas pulling a gun on Terry Walker. (laughs) And Paul Daniels has his own gun, which is... They must have worked out the bit between them. (laughs) I don't know why you would, but if you ever need to find yourself illustrating an additional Blankety Blank, that's a slide to use. Because you can actually make it look like an episode of some sort of American detective series. So I think we've got to the heart of the games. There's still more that we could talk about because we could talk about the revivals of Blankety Blank. Of course, Match Game was revived in the 90s, revived last year. And it, I mean, it is still going also in the UK because it was the Paul Grady era, which, unusually, one of the strange instances of a show actually transferring from Beep to ITV, pretty much intact. And there was a David Williams Christmas special just last year. You can't find the Lily Savage ones on YouTube, but you can find the unediting recording sessions for some reason. That is, that is odd. If you want to see Lily Savage ones, they're actually playing on Challenge in the UK right now. I think mainly at weekends. So what are we talking about next week on Jaffa Cakes of Roost? Well, I'll tell you what. As it was good fun last time, why don't we step forward one year from 1964 and do the second Beatles film? Why don't we talk about Help? Okay, from me, Tilted Rice, a goodbye. And from me, Gary Roger, cheerios. <laughs>